This is the Life Church Podcast. For more messages, to watch our live stream, or to find other events, go to lifechurchnow.org. All right, we're, we're in the series called Uncommon, and today I'm going to talk about the return of Jesus, the second coming. Maybe you've heard of it as the rapture of the church. And uh, a little pregnant pause here. I'm surveying. Because, you know, when I talk, when I bring this up, it, it elicits all kinds of responses, actually. Like, uh, like, there might be some of you in this room right now that, that when the, the rapture or the second coming or the, the, the return of Jesus gets brought up, it, you get a little bit nervous. You're, you're a little bit concerned. You feel uncomfortable because for you, perhaps, when you were growing up, when you were young, it was used kind of like a weapon. <laughs> like as soon as you, you hit puberty, you know, your parents started saying, hey, hey, you know, Jesus could come at any minute. Do you really want to be listening to that music? Hey, you can watch that movie if you want to, but, you know, Jesus might come and you, do you really want to be sitting in that movie theater watching that movie when Jesus comes back? And so for you, it's gotten a little bit, your, those synapses in your mind have kind of gone off and they associate the return of Jesus kind of like a bomb that can explode at, at the worst possible time in your life, you know? And you're like, oh, I don't even want to talk about this. For others of you, though, and, and for myself and many others in this room, I'm, you know, the, we look at the return of Jesus with excitement and anticipation because it's a promise given by the, by the Father and by Jesus that, that one day we will be with our loved ones. So maybe you have loved ones that have passed on and, and you hope to be with them. And I mean, that's how I feel. I mean, I've got my, my grandmother who has been gone for some years now. I can't wait for the day that I sit across the table from her and she reaches out to me and her hands aren't going to be all curled up because of rheumatoid arthritis. They're going to be nice and fresh. And she's going to reach out. She's going to grab me. And I'm just going to have this amazing conversation with Abuelita because, because she's in heaven. And so I look at the return of Christ with anticipation, with excitement. Then there's others who see this not so much as something to be afraid of or something to, to, to be excited about. There's some, um, some of you that see this kind of as a point to debate. Like I, I bet in a, in a crowd this size, I bet as soon as I said, we're going to be talking about the return of Christ, the rapture of the church. As soon as I said that, there were some of you, I'm sure that were thinking, okay, I wonder what millennial camp he's from. Is he pre-trib? Is he mid-trib? Is he post-trib? Where, where does he land on all that? I'd like to know because I got I to I gotta challenge him on that. Well, Paul's going to write to the Thessalonians, and he's going to talk to them about the return of Christ and what happens when they die. What I'm going to do is I'm going to skip to verse 18 right now just to kind of go up to the, to the part after he talks about the, the rapture, the, the, the coming of the Lord, to kind of give you the reason why he's talking about it. In verse 18, we'll go back to th- verse 13 in a minute, but in verse 18 he says this, therefore, having talked about the return of the Lord, he says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another with these words. I was like, I want you to understand why, why I want to talk to you about the return of Jesus Christ. The purpose is to strengthen you, to encourage you, to unite us together, 
to spur us on to live faithful lives as we prepare for the return of Jesus Christ. That's the reason why I want to talk about this. Paul does not say, therefore, debate one another with these words. And I hope that you hear me on this. I know I'm being a little bit facetious and funny here, but I hope that you hear me on this because oftentimes when it comes to the talking about the end times or what's going to happen next or the rapture of the church, instead of it being something of encouragement for the body of Christ, it becomes something of of great discord and argument. I mean, the church historically has not had a very good track record about things like this anyways, where something that should be meant to encourage and build up is used instead or converted or transformed into something that divides and discourages. I remember when I first... um, when I first became a Christian, I, I, I became a Christian at this church in, in Duncanville, Texas. I was 19 years old, and um, I had never really attended church, but I started going to this church, and I gave my life to Christ there. And this church, they used to do these things called potluck dinners. Anybody remember potluck dinners? Potluck dinners are awesome, yeah? Yeah, potluck dinners are awesome because, you know, you, people bring these covered dishes, and they bring all this food, and it's amazing, you know. There's always the mystery jello, which you might want to avoid, like, you know, I, I know I saw an eyeball in there. I think I saw an eyeball in that mystery jello, right? There's always that. But, you know, potluck dinners, the intent of a potluck dinner was to bring people together, to, to encourage one another, to have fellowship, to spend time with each other. Well, this particular uh, time when I was there, was a brand new Christian. I'm in this church. I, there was this family that was kind of, they were just, they were like inciting a rebellion. They, they, were, they were boycotting the potluck dinner. And I didn't, you know, I I was new to church. I didn't really understand why, but I knew that they were boycotting this potluck dinner. Well, I found out and discovered later that the reason why was because of the word potluck. Like luck. Luck is like a superstitious word. Like why would you, why would a church-sponsored event have some kind of superstitious word like luck in it? Right? And doesn't that kind of go against the sovereignty of God anyway? So why would we even use luck at all? And so they kind of made their point, I guess. I never, I was, it was behind closed doors. I never saw it. But I, but I think the leadership caved in. And, and then they decided to change it. So the following month, they, you do it once a month. So the following month, the, the bulletin came out. And we were all invited to a pot blessing. <laughs> now, now... Okay, here's, here's the problem. I'm a brand new Christian, okay? So when I read Pop Blessing, it was like, is this like a marijuana festival? Is it like bring your brownies and, and then we're gonna have a Pop Blessing after, after church? If you just, you know, is that what this is? Because it just, it just seems a little bit weird, right? Something that should have been something that unites and encourages became something that divides. Paul's going to talk to us and he's going to say, look, this is not to to divide us, this is to unite us. And he's going to challenge us on that, of what happens when we die, what what we can expect when Jesus returns, that the purpose of all of this is to strengthen and to encourage a church. And so for the Christians in Thessalonica, this was very important because it was difficult for them in this very hedonistic culture to live a life for Christ, to live a holy life. They were, it was a place where they were going to be persecuted. Thessalonica would become a city of of intense persecution and even Christians being killed. And so Paul wants to talk to them and says, listen, you need to stand strong. You need to stand firm. 
You need to be, you need to be encouraged in the faith. So what would be the inspiration? Like when you're being persecuted, when, when things are not going well for you externally, pressure is being forced in, what would be the inspiration? What would be the motivation to stand strong? What would keep us from caving in? And that's really what Paul's gonna talk about. He's gonna make an argument that we have this hope that is not found in this world. That we have a hope, a confidence that's not found in the circumstances of this life. That what gives you joy and peace now, and hear me because a lot of us are here, if we're Christians especially too, this can happen to us, that what gives you joy and peace right now is not because just simply what is happening right now. That oftentimes our joy and peace is conditional on whether my finances are well, my marriage is going okay, this is happening right, and that's happening right. Paul's going to make the argument that what gives you joy and peace now is not about what happens now, but it's about what is going to happen in the future. That you have the capacity that as you live and walk through life, you can have joy and peace no matter what the circumstances are in your life. And that's basically what Paul's talking about. So in verse 13... He starts with this, he says, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. He says, I don't want you to be confused here. I don't want you to be uninformed because if you're confused about this, you might grieve different than you should. You might grieve as a person who has no hope for the future especially for these Gentiles, that was an important message because their worldview was this, this, you have this life and it ends and that's it, it's done. There's no more to life. And it went well with their philosophy. Their philosophy was that you live for pleasure. That's the purpose of life is to live for pleasure. And so if that's it, if this is the life that you have and it ends when you die and it's over, then yes, live it up. Like, what's that? YOLO. Just, you only live once. Just live it up. Paul's going to challenge that. He says, I don't want you to be confused about this because it will affect how you live. He uses this euphemism, sleep. It's used a lot in the scripture, actually. Partly because it's more accurate, right? Like, when you sleep, you will wake up. That's uh, hopeful. Hopefully, (laughs) you fall asleep and you wake up. But when you sleep, you will, you will wake up. And so in many ways, that's accurate that when we die, that this is not the, it's not over. It's not done. There is more to it, right? I think another reason Paul uses this is because it's a little bit nicer than saying he died. Like we, we have our own set of euphemisms. We, call, we say things like passing on, going ahead. I think this one was invented by, a, by, a, by an Iowan bought the farm. <laughs> I, I don't get it. What does it mean you bought the farm? You might have to enlighten me, enlighten me on that one. Um, like he died and he bought the farm. Maybe he had good insurance. Maybe that's what happened. He had good insurance and he bought the farm. I don't know what happened. But anyways, different ones. Pushing up daisies, swimming with the fishes, many, many other ways of saying death without saying death. <clears throat> now some people have used this teaching of Paul, this word sleep of Paul to kind of create this false teaching about soul sleep. That when you die, your soul goes to sleep or you hibernate. And then when Jesus comes back, you kind of wake up 
and then all of a sudden you were with God. But that kind of goes against what the scriptures teach because Paul says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, right? This also eliminates the, 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 the teaching of purgatory. The Bible in no way talks about there's this place that when you die, after you die, you go to a place to pay for your sins. That's inconsistent with what scripture teaches. In fact, um, it is inconsistent with the crucifixion of Christ. Because what it tells us about the crucifixion of Christ is that that debt was paid at the cross, period. You don't have to pay any more debt. And so the Bible doesn't teach that at all. In fact, Jesus is hanging on the, on the cross and there was two thieves to left and right. And one of them basically expressed faith in Christ that he is the Messiah, he is the coming one. And even though the man was guilty of his sin, even though the man was dying on the cross because of the guilt of his sin, Jesus said to him, today, not in some distant future, today you will be with me in paradise. So to be, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So because we know how, what happens when we die, then Paul says we don't grieve as those with, without no hope. We have hope. I know that for some of you in this room right now, because you're, you're going through some, some real challenges in life, it's hard to conjure up hope. This is why Paul is talking about this. Because you can have hope. <clears throat> now, be real clear, Paul's not saying uh, if we don't grieve, he's not, that's not what he's saying. Um, he's not saying, hey, your, your relative was a Christian and he died because he was a Christian, just get over it. You don't have to grieve. You don't have to cry about that. That's not what he's trying to tell us. Grief is a real thing. I've been to a lot of funerals, and, and I've done many funerals, attended funerals. And, um, you know, almost always when I walk into the room without anybody ever saying a word, I can, I can understand the faith of that person. It's like it's in the atmosphere. It's in the air. Like the room is full of hope. Or it's devoid of hope. You feel it. <clears throat> you see, grieving without hope or with hope is like, it's the difference between saying goodbye forever or saying see you later. And as Christians, we understand that this life on earth is so brief that if you could think of your life as, let's say, this 30-volume encyclopedia set, that your current life, the life this 70, 80, 90 years, 100 years that we'll live on this earth, it's like the first page of the introduction of the very first volume of that encyclopedia set. That's our life. So Paul says, don't grieve like those who have no hope. You have a hope. You have a hope. Verse 14 kind of gives us the rationale of this hope. He says, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again. So we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Because Jesus rose from the grave, because he rose again, he's conquered death. He holds the keys to the grave. This is the foundation of our hope. This is why Paul can talk confidently about a hope that we have, because Jesus rose from the grave. See, this hope that we have, this confidence that we have is not this false, hopeful, optimistic kind of thing. It's not like, hey, wouldn't it be nice if there was an eternal life? Wouldn't it be nice if there was a heaven and all of us could go to heaven someday? That's not what Paul is saying here. Paul's saying Jesus died, he was buried, and in three days he came back to life again. And because that happened, 
in a solid way, you and I have hope. We have hope for a future, that what he said is true. Verse 15 says, according to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. In other words, those who have died are with Jesus, and we will follow. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command. This is kind of, he depicts what it's going to look like or sound like. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with a trumpet, of, trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, I know that this might be a little bit confusing because didn't I just say earlier that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord? And now I'm saying, Paul's saying, yeah, well, when Jesus comes, some distant future or some near future, when Jesus comes, the dead in Christ will rise first. Kind of seems to contradict the two. I mean, if they're with Christ, why would they still have to rise again later? This seems, maybe, maybe you've had that question. Well, Paul talks extensively about this in 2 Corinthians 5. Basically, what Paul is telling is that when we die, when we die, our souls go to be with Jesus. But we're still awaiting a physical resurrection. That these bodies in the, in the future will be, when Jesus comes back, will be raised back to life. We will have a new resurrected body. So you can breathe a sigh of relief because... You're not going to land with the same body, just in case you were worried about that, all right? In fact, Paul talks about our bodies, our earthly bodies, he, he, in 2 Corinthians 5, he talks about as tents. How many of you like camping? Like tent camping, I mean. Okay, just raise your hand when I say tent camping, all right? Okay, you bunch of crazy people. You um, should never do that. You should... Uh, Come talk to me after service about hotels. I can tell you about hotels. They they work. It's better. (laughs) I didn't. I've never had a good experience with camping. And when I was a Cub Scout, you know those what do they call them? Pup tents. You know the little small tiny tents, two man kind of tent. You know. Um, I would I would get those. We'd go camping. You know to get that little camping badge. You know and all that stuff. And we'd go camping. And my tents just never. They sagged in the middle. The parts didn't work well. They always smelled kind of moldy. And so Paul says that our earthly bodies are like tents. They sag in the middle. Parts don't always work right. Some of you smell kind of moldy. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry about that. Um, Basically what Paul is saying here is that we're going to have a new physical body. When, when Jesus returns. Verse 17, so after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. And I want you to underline something here. I know if you don't have your Bible, you can highlight it in your, in your app. But he says, we who are still alive. Do you get this? That Paul wrote this nearly 2,000 years ago. And he wrote it from the perspective, the assumption that Jesus was gonna come back in his time. That there was nothing out there waiting to stop or prevent Jesus from coming back. That Jesus could come at any minute 2,000 years ago. That's how he wrote this. In church doctrine, this is called the imminent return of Christ. That we believe that Jesus at any moment, there's nothing keeping him from coming. That at any moment, Jesus could return. And if we have that understanding, if we feel that way, if it's something that it, we've internalized then it'll affect how we live. 
It'll shape how we live. It'll inform the choices that we make day in and day out if we knew that Jesus could come at any moment. In chapter 5, he kind of gives us language to help us understand how we should, how we should always be ready for that. In verse 1, he says, Now, brothers and sisters, <clears throat> about times and dates, we do not need to write you. Uh, when I was in Bible college, we had a professor, John G. Hall, who, uh, who he, would, he had these like, he had these hundred foot canvases that would spread the back wall of, it's called a, like a dispensational timeline and he would just like explain how you know this and this would happen and that would happen and then this would happen and then Jesus would come back at some future point you know and he was kind of laying it all out Paul says you know what we don't need to talk about that it's not important to go and dig in through Ezekiel and Daniel and find the revelations about the return of Christ we don't need to really go there he says for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Here Paul uses two metaphors, thief in the night and labor pains. Both of these represent the, the suddenness of the return of Christ, the surprise that might follow. A thief in the night and labor pains. Now, as a father of four, I know something about labor pains. Let me back up. Shh. As a father of four, um, I know absolutely nothing about labor pains. Sorry. Uh, yeah. I, I have no idea. You know, I've never experienced them. I have no idea how it feels, but I've been married to a lovely woman who endured an amazing you know, labor pain. And uh, she fathered our four children, or sorry, mothered our four children. <laughs> so that's how confused I am, because I just stuck my foot in my mouth and I was doing it again. I'm going to keep doing it. So I know nothing about labor pains, but I do know, I've seen, I've seen her go through it. I understand a little bit about what she goes through, I see from a distance at least. And so my job, you know, after Lamaze class, I had to figure out what I would, my job was to, to measure to, or to monitor frequency and intensity. That was my job, right? She's looking at me like, I'm surprised you even remember that. <laughs> There's a lot of things she's surprised I remember. Um, uh, so frequency and So frequency is, you know, how, how often between contractions and how long the contractions last, that's frequency. And then intensity, you've got to kind of be a little bit careful with intensity because intensity, um, like, you don't ask the question, did that hurt? That's a total rookie move. To say, did that hurt? It's like... You, you might get hit, yeah, I don't know. Something might get thrown at you, I don't know. You don't ask that. You, you might say something more like, okay, Bay. that's what I call my wife, Bay. she's sitting right there. All right, Bay. so on a scale of one to 10, one being amputation and 10 being burnt at the stake. How painful was that? 15, okay, I'll write that down. I got that, that's what I thought. It was 15, it's really, really bad. Yeah, that's how you deal with talking about intensity, right? Well, <clears throat> Paul says, Paul tells us that we can actually monitor the frequency and intensity of the return of Christ. And we have the ability of doing that. Now, there's not no science behind it necessarily. In fact, Jesus talks about this in Matthew 24. He talks about how, how there's a, an increase in famines and, and natural disasters like earthquakes and all of that. And so we recognize that in the last two decades, Famines and natural disasters and earthquakes and stuff have gone up 400%. So we recognize, okay, this seems interesting. This is happening. 
Jesus also says in Matthew 24, there's going to be an increase of, in wars and rumors of wars. So I don't know if you realize this, but since before 1914, there was not a universal war. There have been conflicts throughout history, but before 1914, there was not a world war. After 1914, there was World War I, World War II. Since World War II, 23 million people have died in wars and conflicts, hundreds of wars and conflicts around the world. Jesus tells us that another sign of this is persecution of Christians. Now, as Americans living in the United States, we don't necessarily understand the idea of persecution of Christians very much because we don't experience it as much. Um, but there are people around the world that, are, that significantly do. In fact, um, the World Evangelical Alliance tells us, estimates that every day 200 million Christians are threatened with death, prison, or torture because of their faith. And so hearing and knowing these things, instead of our reaction being, oh, wow, that's, that's, that's bad. That's terrible that's happening. Our reaction should be, this feels frequency and intensity. This feels like maybe Christ is coming back soon. And it affects how we live. Paul goes on, verse 4. He says, um, but you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that, day, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. There's a different, different kinds of surprises. Surprise like a thief is not one that we want. But he says, as a Christian, you don't have to be surprised. You don't have to be surprised. He goes on, you are, you are children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us, be, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. And here he compares two different people, those who are awake and sober with those who are drunk and asleep. That really our posture as followers of Jesus Christ is to be awake and sober. That's the challenge that Paul is giving us here. That we are to stay awake and sober. That we are to pay attention on how we live because Jesus might come any moment. That's really what Paul is trying to challenge us in this, in this passage. He's telling us that we don't, this life that we live... This is not all there is to life. That there's more to life than the 70 years that we spend on this earth or the 90 years or 100 years that we spend on this earth. That there's life beyond that. And because we have this uncommon confidence that Jesus could come at any moment, we need to live that way. Let us live with an uncommon confidence that Jesus could come at any moment. There's this article um, in an L.A. paper, I can't remember the, I don't remember the paper, but it was, uh, it was citing some research from UC San Diego about, um, about spoiler alerts. And the title of the, of the article was spoiler alert, spoiler alert, Stories Are Not Spoiled by Spoilers. And um, the article was making the point that increasingly we use the, the phrase spoiler alert, like you, you walk up to somebody and say, hey, spoiler alert, and what you're trying to say is, I'm about to reveal, you know, the end of the movie. <laughs> or I'm about to re reveal this, the score of the game, right? And so we tend to resist that. We don't want that to happen, you know. But this is what, they're, what they were saying. They were pointing out that research says that having the ending spoiled doesn't necessarily take away from our enjoyment. Instead, knowing the story's end, how the story ends enhances our enjoyment, is what they said. They, they, they had participants in this test study and all of that, 
And here's what they here's what they said that those who knew how the story ended were less stressed and less anxious, and they enjoyed the journey than those who did not did not know what the ending was like. And then this is a conclusion. Once you know how the story turns out, it allows you to become more comfortable processing what is happening in the story. So Paul tells us, this is how it ends. This is how it ends. And if the researchers are right at UC San Diego, then we should be able to enjoy this journey, knowing how it ends, right? So Paul's telling you and I, he tells the church in Thessalonica, he tells us here at Life Church that I know it is hard. I know this life is gonna break your heart. I know that you might, you, right now, you are you're just overwhelmed with anger because your, your husband left you for that other woman. I know that right now you are totally hurt because your children have just, they don't want to have a relationship with you. I know that. I understand that. I realize what's going on, but this is how the story ends. And knowing how the story ends helps you process the journey better. See, if we understand how it ends, then it changes the journey on how we get there. Because we have this uncommon confidence for our future. We don't grieve as those who without hope. We don't, we don't work as those without purpose. We don't struggle as those without faith. We don't go to bed as those without peace. We don't wake up with, as those without joy. We don't live and die as those without a faith, without hope. We have this uncommon hope. I want us to stand. We're going to pray. Paul says, encourage one another with these words. Why, why is there need? If, if, if the end of the story is we win, we're going to heaven, we're making it. Why would Paul say, hey, encourage one another with these words? Except that he's saying, because of your present day struggle, because of what you're going through right now, because of the challenges you're facing at this very moment, you need encouragement. And I wish I could encourage you. Paul would probably, I'm adding a little bit to Paul's statement. Paul would probably want to say, I wish I could encourage you by telling you, you will never suffer again. I wish I could encourage you by telling you, your, your, your husband will come back, your wife will come back. I wish I could encourage you by telling you, hey, what you know what? Your body from this point on is going to be totally perfect. You'll never feel any more pain. I wish I could encourage you that way, but I can't. But I can encourage you with this. That I know how the story ends. I know how the story ends. And this momentary life that we have is just the beginning. Just the beginning. And so if you're in this room right now and you're struggling... I think Paul would say to you, be encouraged. Be encouraged. We're going to worship here in a second. And what I want to ask you to do while we're worshiping, if you're here this morning and you're struggling and there's a challenge, you feel incredibly overwhelmed. I'm not going to, we're not going to necessarily, our prayer teams are here, they're here to serve you. But if you're here, you say, look, I just want to, I want to acknowledge that right now I'm living in this world and I'm struggling, but I need an intervention from Christ. I need Jesus Christ to just reveal the reality of my future. And that in, 
no matter what the pain is and what the challenges are, I know how the story ends. I want to live with that. I want to be able to live in a way that understands the ending of the story. Then what I'm going to ask you to do is simply step out of your seat, come up to the front. We're just going to, during worship, and we're just going to lift our hands to God and worship Him and invite His presence into this place. Amen? All right, come on and do that. 